You know, it's such a shame that it's so hard to find good, honest, legal help these days. How to dream, cowboys? Welcome back. We are your HBO boys. We are recapping and reviewing the 1965 show Perry Mason in the run-up to the HBO remake coming out this Sunday. Wow. Uh, I'm James, and with me always is Ryan. I'm Ryan, and it's great news that you announced that it is this Sunday. I have been so deep within watching old Perry Mason, and I've been very well aware Matthew Reese who is starring as the titular Perry Mason in the upcoming reboot is on his press tour at the moment. I just saw him on Seth Meyers, but it didn't really click in my head this Sunday. Wowie Kazowie. I'm excited. I'm excited now. I, as I said many times, I never heard of Perry Mason until last month, but apparently, you know, the people on our discord are talking about it, that they have fond memories. Uh, there seems to be some buzz about this show. I wonder if it's going to be a sleeper hit kind of the way, true detective was we'll see it will be interesting because i st- i don't think the star power the a large reason true detective was a sleeper hit quote unquote was because they truly had star power behind it matthew reese while being a large star perry mason was originally going to be robert downey jr right like right how many more millions of people would have watched the show if it was robert downey jr rather than matthew reese the episode we chose today is Season 1, Episode 38, entitled The Case of the Moth-Eaten Mink. And this is listed as the best episode of Perry Mason on on a few websites. So apparently fans of Perry Mason have decided, well, they've had 60 years to figure it out, that this is the best episode. Out of the three we've watched, I would say it is my favorite one. And there are also historical factoids that make this episode very, very cool. It was the first episode ever filmed of Perry Mason. So it was the pilot that was shown to the networks. It was filmed months and months before every other episode, but they apparently just decided not to air it at the beginning. So there are a bunch of things about this episode in particular that are not like any other episode. Raymond Burr's hair is completely different. Yes. And Paul get around by taxi. Perry has a much larger office. Della addresses Perry as chief and sir, which I, that one I understand. The amount of sexism rampant in, I believe, the the 1950s, let alone the show, speaks to why Perry Mason is chief to Della. But yeah, a bunch of different stuff. Like the They have like employees in this version. That's right. And, and also, I would say that Raymond... Burles? Is that his name? Burr. Like, you're cold, dude. Okay, Raymond Burr, his performance is a little bit different in this one. He's a bit more, like, stoic and hard-nosed than he is in the other episodes that we watched. It feels less like theater. It feels more like... Like like, like a movie. Yeah, right. Like, they were trying desperately for film noir, and then they came back for the second episode, and they were like, whatever, dude. Just make it a stage play. Yeah, they they signed us up for 400 episodes, so do whatever you want. (laughs) For nine years, and I don't know how many people are going to watch, so really just mix it up in there, Ray. The episode begins at Maury's Steaks, a restaurant in downtown L.A. The Big Apple. (laughs) Yeah, 
<laughs> the Windy City. <laughs> Perry and Della come to the restaurant. The owner welcomes them, and they're seated by the waitress named Dixie. The owner's Maury. This is his steakhouse, steak restaurant. I guess when you when you say steakhouse, you imagine something a little more casual. This is a fancy place. I imagine a house made out of cooked cow. Personally, I'm I need help. As they're sitting down waiting to get their order, a sort of old-timey gangster-looking fellow also comes into the restaurant. So this show came out in the 60s. I think it's maybe set in the 50s or the 40s, because this gangster dude looks, you know, like he'd be running around with Al Capone. I believe the show aired from 55 to 64, so this was filmed in 1955, and you're right. He looks like an old-timey gangster. He's like five foot four. No one should be afraid of him, but everyone is. Right. He's one of those, you know, tough, beefy manlets who would would, would would instantly kick the shit out of you or I. Right. He's a steakhouse. When Dixie catches eyes with the gangster looking dude, she immediately panics and runs out the back of the restaurant. When she goes out the back, she's chased down by a black car that was waiting outside. The driver takes two shots at her and misses she runs out in the street and womp, womp, just gets smashed by a car. <laughs> gets mowed down. The car changes. It started off as a Cadillac and then hit her as a Chevrolet, but... No, no I think a random bystander hit her with her car because she was running uh... in the street like a maniac. So they didn't, they didn't mess up? I wanted them to mess up. I'm going to stick with my version of reality. Maury comes back and tries to apologize to Della and Perry that they haven't gotten their order taken yet. I mean, they haven't even got their drinks yet. Maury's got leave. Perry's trying to get a load on her, right? He's got a hard job. It also feels like Della and Perry are in some sort of relationship in this episode and not in any other ones. Yeah, well, it's strange because they, they seem really close and they have some kind of rapport. But then also, you know, they, they never, you know, seem to be that romantic and neither one of them has a wedding ring on, so they're both probably single. Who knows? It's his, yeah. It's his work wife, as they say, you know? You sound like their friend who's talking to Della, being like, "You're come on, you're both single. But then also, you know, Perry lets Paul, like, hit on Della right in front of him and never says anything, so. That's because Paul can do whatever he wants. That guy knows jujitsu, so he's the alpha in every room that he's in. Another staff member comes up to Maury, the restaurant owner, and is like, Hey, so uh, the waitress just ran out and got shot and hit by a car. Maybe maybe call the police. And instead, he's like, Oh, God. Oh, man. My name is Maury. That's a weird name. I'm going to go into the back. I'm going to go to a locker and take out a mink coat. You're saying Dixie's dead? Well, let me get her coat. I am chilly due to fright, and this fur is soft and makes me feel safe. He comes over and he tells Perry about what happened. Everyone just unloads immediately all their problems on Perry whenever he's yeah. around. Oh, well, it's, it's 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 established that Perry and Maury are friends or something. That they've known each other for a while. They're friendly. Both of them aren't wearing wedding rings. They should date. And he's like, "Hey, can you hold on to this mink coat?" And this is ridiculous. So Della's like, "Oh, I'm surprised that a waitress can afford a mink coat like that." And Maury's like, oh, well, it's not as good as all that. I mean, it's got a few moth holes in it. Maury's like, listen, the cops are going to come to investigate the shooting and car crash. I need you guys to hold on to Dixie's mink coat because if they find out that my waitress had a mink coat, they will assume that my waitresses are prostitutes. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he might have, he basically said like all the cops will think my waitresses be fucking. They can't think that. And I I literally paused it. I because I was taken aback by the the sentence. Because like, will they though? Is that what they'll think? Perry seems okay. to think so. He's he Perry's nodding. He's like, Perry's mm-hmm, like good mm-hmm. point. Good point, Maury. <laughs> That's immediately what I would think if I saw uh, a waitress with a mink coat. Mm. You're right. I do think they'd be fucking. There's no way a family member would have gifted it to them. or No, waitresses aren't worth it or valuable. Perry, being the, the busybody that he is, goes through the pockets of the coat and checks the tags. And behind the tag, a weird place to keep anything, behind the tag of the coat, he finds a pawn shop ticket, which I guess is something like a receipt that you would get when you sell something from a pawn shop in the 50s, for a pawn shop in Portland, Oregon, worth $18. So someone pawned something and got $18 for it. That's important for later. It is. Perry looks around and sees that everyone is in a hubbub about the coppers outside, except for the little steakhouse who doesn't care at all. And again... Perry is so so nosy. He's like, why isn't that guy interested or curious? He must be a felon. So $18 in 1957 is about $200 today. Fuck. So money sold something for a good amount of money. Yeah. Perry and Della wonder why the restaurant owner is so concerned. Like, okay, yeah, someone got hit by a car. It's good that you called the police. Why are you freaking out about this? And maybe, maybe, Della wonders, maybe there's some kind of affair going on between Maury and the waitress. And it's like, well, maybe he's worried because she could be dead and she's his employee. You guys, your minds go to such strange places. To be fair, though, Della is consistently seen in this show as a a decently good detective whom doesn't have the job of being a detective. She is a secretary but it's consistently doing like, as well of his job as Perry or Paul does. So, like, and it's in a show where the sexism is so blatant, it's funny most of the time. So you just got to give it to her. You might as well. Like, Della, good point. Could be that. The cops come in to talk to Maury. The gangster-looking dude is giving them the side eye. Maury comes over and tells Perry that Dixie is seriously injured and he wants to put Perry on retainer. Perry's like, uh, why have you committed a crime? <laughs> Perry wants him to spill everything. Like, why Why are you suddenly asking for a defense attorney? And Maury's like, what, I'm not hiding anything. All of a sudden, you know, my waitress got hit by a car. Now I want to hire a criminal defense attorney. What's the big deal? Immediately and without any questions asked. Also, and by the way, Perry's just taken aback. Like, wow, he didn't tell me everything right from the beginning? That doesn't happen to me. He asks Maury about the gangster-looking dude, and Maury's like, I I never met him. I don't believe you, Maury. Perry places a phone call to Lieutenant Tragg. He has a name, James. You know what his name is? What? I've been calling him the same thing for two episodes now. Oh, uh, Old Man Cool Hat. That would be Old Man Cool Hat back at it again. Sans hat at this very moment. But his hat will come back into play very soon. He tells Lieutenant Tragg about the gunshots and the car crash. And Trag's like, yeah, I'm already aware of this. The girl's down at Central Hospital or whatever. And Perry tells him, hey, I think it's a good idea if you would put some cops outside her door. Lieutenant Trag's like, why? And Perry's like, oh, just a hunch that I have. I'm so coy. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then he adds like, hey, uh, and make sure the hospital bills me for her care because I'm such a white knight. If it had been a guy who was hit by a car, fuck it, let him pay the bill. No, yeah, no. He he can use his own pennies and dimes. But listen, old man, cool hat. This is Perry Mason. And I know a damsel in distress when I see her. Here's all the money that Maury just gave me. Next, he calls up Paul, his private detective best friend. I assume they're best friends. If they're not best friends, it's very sad for Paul. They have to be best friends. He tells Paul to dig up all the info he can get on this pawn shop in Portland. And this uh, this this sales ticket that he has. Paul's going to use his friend Herb Mulligan, which is an awesome name. The next day... Perry gets into the office and Della, again, she's like, hey, chief, which is not what she called him in the other episodes, as he pointed out. Yep. Weird has so many employees that didn't exist eventually. Della gives him a letter from Maury, which includes a thousand dollar retainer. A thousand dollars in 1957 is about $9,000 today. So Perry Mason does not come cheap. All right. He comes expensive. He doesn't come at all. Through the power of editing, it's going to feel and sound like you just knew that off the top of your head. And I know this sentence is kind of chopping the legs out of that, but I just want everyone to know that the world is a lie. <laughs> Murray's letter also includes the name of the gangster dude from the restaurant, George Fayette. And Perry's like, okay, so if he both knew the name of the gangster dude in his restaurant and is now putting me on retainer for $1,000 for ostensibly no reason, he probably knew that guy the whole time and there's something going on here. Maury's in some deep shit, and he won't tell me the truth. Paul comes into the office, sits down next to Perry's desk. He sits down like he's the coolest girl in school. Like, his legs are too, like, way right. wide open. And the first thing he says, he comes into the office, he looks at Della, hey, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. Just every time. If they, uh, if they were the 1990s or later, Della would have had a sweet sexual harassment suit on her hand. She could take Perry for all he had. She could have won... Three, maybe even $419.55. Right, and then she'd be set for life. She could have bought a townhouse in the Windy City, or perhaps the Big Apple. Paul gives Perry the rundown about this pawn shop sale. The same owner who pawned that ring for $18 on the same day pawned a police officer's gun. Very suspicious. So why does Dixie have a receipt for this ring that was sold alongside a police officer's gun? Mysterious. And then Perry says, two pawn tickets, one she hides in a mink coat and one she puts in her purse for anyone to find it. And then Paul's like, well, she is a woman. <laughs> yeah, like, right. <laughs> Jesus Christ, dude. Paul also lets Maury know that the cops know he's got Dixie's jacket and they want it. <laughs> I, I just wanted Perry to be like, fuck. Another waitress gave up the game and told the cops everything. A waitress by the name of May, who Paul brought in to meet Perry. As Paul is leaving, Perry tells him to dig up some dirt on this George Fayette gangster character, and he calls May into the office. Now, May is only in this one sequence, but, you know, they have this, uh, this, this kind of maxim in theater that if you've got a small role, make it big. And she definitely yeah. does. She owns the scene. Tries her very, very best. This is... I was looking her up because I was so interested in, because I was like, when you see this actress, who, by the way, not a very good actress. Very beautiful, though. Beautiful. Her name is Roxanne Arlen. She does not go on to do almost anything of worth. She is like a B-movie actress. She's just always used in this exact way, which was, hey, look, this attractive person likes the dude. That dude must 
be pretty cool to be to be a, liked by this attraction. She would go on to also, by the way, be in another episode of Perry Mason five years later playing someone completely different. But the way was she was acting to me looked like she ate the other half of a pot brownie because she was becoming impatient and then was realizing her awful mistake the moment they said action. And she was like, well, let's go for it. Well, she's playing a character who's like a gossipy airhead and uh, she does a really good job of that at least like the 1950s version of it you know, her voice is like extremely high and she's like blinking a lot and uh at first she's like well i'm no gossip i'm not gonna talk about my co-workers like that and then she does exactly that <laughs> just so easily they're like yeah you know i assume there's nothing going on there's no way those two would be having an affair and she's like what? Of course they're having an affair. I should know. If those two never met before she came to work, I don't know human nature. Which I do, is an exact quote. May assumes that Dixie and Maury are having an affair because she knows that Maury is the one who gave her the mink coat. Oh, what you doing, Maury? What are you doing? However, Maury had been keeping the mink coat in his closet for a long time and didn't use mothballs, which is why it's got moth holes in it. Maury, you idiot. You ruined a, a, a very expensive jacket. What a freaking idiot. I didn't know a man could be this dumb. I assumed that was just kept for womenly matters. May is a total Perry Mason fanboy, and she makes it very clear she wants to bang Perry. And she's like, next time you come into the restaurant, why don't you come and ask to be seated in my area yeah she's straight stroking the door like a dick as she leaves just letting <laughs> perry mason know that's her general vibe perry goes to the hospital to visit dixie and if i'm not mistaken the picture of the hospital that they use for the establishing shot here is the same building as arkham asylum in the 2019 joker movie if i'm wrong about that i guess i could be but the, then the buildings are extremely similar Jesus, deep cuts. When he gets to the hospital, Trag is already there waiting. He tries to grill Perry about why Maury wants a lawyer in the first place and where is the mink coat. And he threatens to arrest Perry if he doesn't hand it over the coat when he drops by his office later today. Perry's like, do whatever you need to. I'm going to go talk to Dixie. And Trag's like, well, good luck because she's gone. Yeah, that could have that was useful information. Could have said that at the beginning. But I'm old man cool hat. I'm not even sans hat right now. I have my hat on. So I'm Trixie. I don't tell you the information that I know right up until it becomes useful by the way that girl's gone where's the coat idiot back at the office paul brings the info on george in apparently he was arrested for bookmaking and he paid his bail but then never went to trial so some kind of mafioso i guess bookmaking is what sports betting is that what what bookmaking means i assume so i only think that because there's that term bookie but you know bookies don't also just you know place and pay out and collect sports bets they you know will also take a bet on credit and then beat the shit out of you when you don't right. come up with the money are you or, talking or from from experience how many broken knees have you had no i'm just talking in, uh you know in in terms of popular culture what the bookie does, you know. I, I wish you were like, no, it doesn't matter, man. Change the subject. I'm not the biggest sports fan, but anytime I have placed a bet on sports, like, oh, suddenly it gets really exciting. Okay, two things. One, you you don't like spurts, but I like spurts. And two, you've placed bet. You, you what spurts have you bet on? Um, I, you know, I, I, if I, the times when I will go to see a baseball game, uh, I will, I will place a sports bet then. Really? Um, I've placed bets on 
the Super Bowl a few times. Okay. And I, I currently have a bet on the 2020 presidential election. You are a degenerate gambler, is what I'm learning <laughs> from this conversation. To be fair, I've I've spent my life betting on the ponies. Paul then asks Perry if he remembers this famous murder case, the Claremont case, in which a LAPD officer, Claremont, was killed in a mafia hit by a bookie named Tom Sedgwick, or assumed to be killed by Tom Sedgwick, because he was the last person to be seen with Claremont before he was found dead bullet to the head and then tom disappeared right after and it turns out the gun that was pawned at the same time as dixie's ring was officer claremont's gun dun, dun, dun. jesus tom sedgwick sounds like a dirty cop played by what's that fucking asshole's name the guy with the mustache now nah, he would never play a dirty cop he's he has too much the guy with so the mustache. Bur- yeah, Burt Reynolds? No. no. The other guy with the mustache. Tom good Bosley? Cops. Who did you just say? Tom Bosley? Tom Bosley's not a real person. I'm naming people with mustaches. You're not. Tom Bosley, you just made that person up. Look, watch this. Watch this. I'm about to Google person with mustache. The first one that comes up. Well, yeah, first one that comes up. What's your goddamn name? I wish this went faster. Oh my God, Men's Health. I'm not going to pay Men's Health for your article about the 40 best mustaches of all time. I'm not going to give you $5.99 to read that. Maybe you should narrow it down to actor with mustache. It is actor with mustache. Oh, you're saying I understand. I gotcha. It's right on the tip of my stash. It's not not Sam Elliott, but that is a great stash. God, you know who it's showing? It's showing uh, Henry Cavill with his stupid $1 million mustache. Nick Offerman? No. Tom fucking Selleck. Okay, I would have gotten there eventually. I'm glad I spent five minutes on that. I don't I don't remember what we were talking about before this. Uh, Perry, oh, says okay, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perry says to Della to go get the mink out of storage so that she can send said mink to old man cool hat. And then Paul tells Perry, he's like, listen, if either one of them are wrapped up in this cop killer case, they're going down and you're going to lose for sure. So why don't you just give him back his retainer? And I didn't understand this. It's like, well, if I defend him, whether he's guilty or not, I still keep the money. So why should I give it back? I think this is just setting up an expectation of this is going to be very difficult to win Perry Mason. And then Perry Mason's like, no, it's no, I'm fine. I win everything. In the middle of the night, Perry is awoken by a call from Maury. He's at a hotel room, the Keymont Hotel in downtown with Dixie. And he wants Perry to come immediately. And he can't involve the cops. Sounds suspicious, Maury. But you did give me a thousand dollars, so I'm yours. Perry then wakes up Paul... And tells him to come meet him at the hotel. And, like, Paul is such a bro. It's like two in the morning, they're both asleep. He's like, hey, come on this dangerous outing with me. And Paul's like, okay, let me put my pants on. You ever see the movie The Town where Ben Affleck walks in to Jeremy Renner and he's like, we're going to hurt some people. You can't ask me who or why. And Jeremy Renner responds with the best line ever, which is, whose car are we taking? Paul is Perry Mason's ride or die. He is Perry Mason's Jeremy Renner. 
Perry arrives at the Keymont Hotel and just totally disses the receptionist. The receptionist's like, do you want to check your mail? No. Well, do you want no. a key? I've got it on me, stupid. You Leave me idiot, alone. shut up. The receptionist looks suspicious as fuck, right? Yeah, this uh, uh, slimy character. Very sus. Suspenseful music plays as Maury walks the hall to room 721. He opens the door. The room is empty. He searches it a bit. There's a spent lipstick on the floor. At first, I thought that was a bullet casing. Yep, that's exactly what I was about to say. (laughs) Perry starts rooting around through some shit. He finds what I thought, again, was a bullet casing on the ground. And the reason I could not tell that it was lipstick is because it's black and white, which is ostensibly worse. Right. If it were color, then it would be brass, and then it would be a bullet casing. But if it were silver, you'd be like, oh, it's makeup. Right. So, make TV better. And then they did. He continues to search for clues, and under the table, he finds a code written along with the word help. Someone goes to open the door. Perry hides behind the door just in case. But, ah, it's false trauma because it's Paul. Yeah, Paul actually looks left to see if anyone's hiding behind the door because the man is well-traveled, okay? He's been doing this a long time. Paul's not going to be bamboozled even by his boss, Perry Mason. Perry shows Paul all the things that he's found, and he points out that writing this secret code under the table as you're sitting at it would be damn near impossible. You'd have to write it backwards and upside down. It's a trap. Right, so it must be a setup. Uh, They figure that the code is a listing in the phone book for a man named Herbert Granton. Paul remembers that that is the name that George Fayette used to register a house in L.A., so it's his nom de guerre. The fuck is a phone book? I'm young. Yeah, can, and the, what really got me is that instead of just having one phone book in the 50s, there's like six volumes, like A through F, G through K. Uh, I'd be so mad. I'm like, yeah, I'm in volume seven this year. Fucking no one's going to call me. Perry has the idea to send Paul out into the hallway. This is the phone in the hallway of hotels in the 50s. Okay. And call the hotel and ask if George Fayette is in the building. So th- I don't think this would work because like, It'd be like picking up the phone in your bedroom to call your living room. Like, that wouldn't work. I mean, uh, you're, yeah, I, I suppose if it's on the same phone line, apparently we're supposed to suspend some disbelief. But, you know, it. Paul is... I thought it was a good plan. Paul calls. I think he does a very good job. I think he's also, by the way, the best actor in the show. He pretends to be an airline canceling a flight for the person he learns is in room 815 because the bellman tells him about it while looking super sus. Yeah, while smirking. Looking like he's setting them up for whatever he's supposed to be setting them up for. And uh, so they both, you know, sneakily, snakily walk up to 815, open up the door, and Steakhouse is just shot on the bed, which is anticlimactic. Paul wants to go to the cops. It's like, okay, this is look. This does not look great for us. Where is the old man? Where is his cool hat? Let us engage him. Perry says that they can't, that, you know, by doing so, he will be putting his client at risk, which goes against, I don't know, the lawyer's code or whatever. But before they can figure out what to do, Lieutenant Trag arrives with a new character, Detective Jeffrey from the Vice Squad. I don't mm. know. Do you know what does the Vice Squad do? Uh, they're they in they Miami just wear- and they flirt with pretty girls. That's correct. They wear even cooler hats, and they they look like they have the power to shake people. 
and not get in trouble for it. That's like their main thing they do. Okay, so they, according to Wikipedia, a vice squad is a police division whose focus is of stopping public order crimes like gambling, narcotics, prostitution, and the illegal sale of alcohol. So they're basically like what the mafia dudes. What the mafia what? They're, they're like the mafia task force in, of the olden days. Oh, well, Jiffy Lube is here and he means business he's very mean to paul immediately i learned from this scene that lawyers have a professional immunity they're immortal basically but they threaten paul they're like you're not a lawyer you dumb dumb idiot you're only a private detective so a worse cop me jiffy lube just telling telling you tell me the truth you tall handsome man that's exactly what he says. Trag threatens Paul. He's like, if I can charge you with obstructing justice, they will take away your PI license and you'll never work in this town again. Oh, fuck. At this point, rather than let Paul take the heat, Perry just gives up everything. Tells him why they're there. He tells him about the secret message. You can't let your ride or die go down, you no. know? They're just so bros. Yeah. If, you know, this were a few decades in the future, they'd probably be living in the same apartment. Right. They. It would be like, what if Perry Mason and Dude Where's My Car was the same thing, you know? Yeah, that's totally what I meant. Uh um, <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey accuses Perry of being involved in a cover-up for a murder committed by Maury. He thinks Maury killed this George Fayette. Trag says that Perry has 24 hours to hand over Maury and Dixie because now they have probable cause to arrest Dixie. They have found that she is connected to this assumed cop killer, Tom Sedgwick. And he says that if I have to convict you with obstructing justice, Perry, I, I will have you disbarred. And then out of nowhere... Perry is like, old man, cool hat, you got a tattoo. And then old man, cool hat's like, dude, what does my tattoo say? And then Perry says, it says sweet. And then old man, cool hat says, it says dude. The next day, Paul rushes into Perry's office. He's not there. He's at home resting off the late night he had. But he tells Della that the cops have arrested Maury and Dixie. So that, that suspense didn't hang in the air very long. Pretty much over immediately. At the police office, Maury asks Perry to represent both him and Dixie. They're going to be charged with the same crimes and put on trial together? Is that a that a thing that happens? Yeah, they're going to hold hands the whole time. Maury confesses that Tom Sedgwick is actually his half-brother and Dixie's former lover. <gasps> and that Tom Sedgwick is a bookie and he thought he would be safe because he had... A police officer on the take. He was bribing a police officer who Maury assumes was Officer Claremont. Perry then asks, if Tom didn't murder Officer Claremont, then why would Dixie have pawned the officer's gun? And Maury's like, well, to the best of my knowledge, she didn't do that. But he's really shocked. He's like, if that's true, then maybe Tom really is the killer. But you know, I'm certain he's not. And Maury, for the first time, is like, oh, shit. Am I being duped? Maury might be being duped. So the facts of the case going into the trial are the mob is after both Tom Sedgwick and Dixie. They want to use Dixie to get to Tom. They want to kill Tom to kind of tie up this loose end because they suspect that he's a cop killer. Yeah, kill him right before the tuberculosis takes him. For some, like, that's a little a tidbit that just slipped in there where... Tom Sedgwick was hiding out in Portland, but had to come back to L.A. because he has tuberculosis. Apparently, that no one knows how to deal with tuberculosis in Portland. Maury felt a responsibility to protect Dixie, who he believes is innocent in all of this. Perry tells Maury that it was his personal gun which killed Fayette. 
George Fayette no. at the hotel. Maury no, swears he had nothing to do with it. The story that he tells is that after he called Perry, two goons came in. Hard characters. They took his gun and they uh, told him to get out of there. And he's like, I didn't shoot anybody. I didn't write any secret message on the table. I'm being set up. Okay, Maury. This doesn't sound likely at all, but you paid me out the ass. So let's get into it. Back in the office, Perry is totally despairing because he thinks there's no way he's going to get these two off and they're going to be executed for sure. He sends Paul off to find information on the receptionist to the hotel, specifically how the receptionist knew to tell Trag they were going to room 721. The receptionist who's super sus is named Frank Hoxie. The trial begins. Maury and Dixie are being charged jointly. I didn't know that was a thing that happened. I thought everyone got their own day in court, but whatever. (laughs) No, not when you're best friends. They're being charged for the murder of George Fayette. The motive being they wanted to cover up the murder of Officer Claremont by Tom Sedgwick. First up on the stand is Frank Hoxie, which I did not see coming. And a thing happens in this scene. Now, we've only watched three episodes. So I don't know if this is something that only happened in this episode and then never happened again. But Perry Mason immediately asks Frank Hoxie, so you sent them up, them being Maury and Dixie, you sent them up to their room and I can't recall, perhaps you can remind me, the the question that led to this. But Frank Hoxie is like, they had no luggage and they said they just got off a flight. So I asked them to give me the money for the room in advance. And then everyone in the courtroom laughs? Yeah, I can explain this. So, oh, fuck. District Attorney Berger asks him about when he came. And he's like, oh, they booked a room under a false name. And because they didn't have luggage, I asked for, the, I asked for payment in advance because he thought they were going to go up to the hotel. Fuck. And then get a get a refund and leave. And that caused everyone in the courtroom to be like, ha, 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 of right. course that happened. He, he, he implied that it, he thought it was a booty call and so everyone laughed. <laughs> Night. I assume that he was implying that they were just like n- going to skip out on paying him completely. That one's sexier. I like that version better. So I guess, you know, what people used to do in the 50s uh, was go to a hotel, get up there fuck and then come down and be like yeah we don't like the room honestly that's the 1950s but that shouldn't go out of style that we should bring that one back um there is a whole cabinet industry in japan of hotels that you rent by the hour for that specific purpose japan's a weird weird place they're called love hotels and uh it's oh, okay it's very funny to me <laughs> the whole not idea. a lot of love happening there Perry starts to cross-examine Frank, the receptionist. He asks him if he's always been the receptionist at the Kimon Hotel, and he says that he has been for the past three years, every single night of his life, (laughs) except for the one week that he was sent to Mexico City in order to collect on a past due bill. All right, well, that's very specific. Thank you. Perry then asks Frank if he's ever been convicted of a felony. This response is interesting. Frank says that he was convicted for armed robbery 10 years ago, but he's turned his life around since then. There was one time where he was picked up on suspicion based on his criminal record, but as soon as he was cleared, the arresting officer then took pity on him and set him up with this steady job at at his friend's hotel. Interesting story. Kind of oversharing. Perry's like, yeah, I wasn't asking for your life story. Thanks. <laughs> but okay. He's just trying, Frank, that is, to prove to the world that he has a amazing memory. 
to which Perry Mason's like, that's great news. Do you know who this picture is? And he was like, oh, yeah, I saw that guy the night I left for Mexico. Uh, and that was a dude who went to go see a man at the hotel. Yeah, the photo is of Officer Claremont and Frank, again, the world's greatest memory, is like, yeah, the night I went to Mexico, that police officer came in to go talk to George Fayette, who was, you know, keeping a room. He had, like, a permanent residence in the hotel. George Fayette. Dun-dun-dun. Oh, my dumping. And then Perry stands up, and he might as well have been like, hey, judge, could I have an hour? Because I goddamn got these people. I got them. Yeah, Perry tells the judge that this testimony has opened up a whole new avenue for the defense, and he requests a short recess in order to present additional evidence, and he gets it. This has brought some shit up, sir. I need to go outside. As everyone leaves, Perry tells Paul to dig up all the information that he can on the Keymont Hotel. God, Paul is really earning his keep this episode. Seriously. He, I mean, he and he has to do no karate. I wish he did karate, just like randomly, to be like, you guys remember that I can do karate? The next day, Perry and Paul comb over the information. They're just, I mean, they're just finishing wrapping up what they were talking about. Feels like that can't be the next day, though. He asked for uh, one hour. Oh, okay, so I don't know. Pe- Paul just did his investigative work instantly. <laughs> yeah, he's good at his job, dog. And and like the scene opens with them finishing going over whatever he brought, and he thanks Paul. He's like, "This is it. We're gonna get them off." As Paul's leaving, nice De- detective Jaffrey arrives. Ooh, Jiffy Lou, at it again. Jaffrey asks Perry if he thinks he really has found the true killer. It's important to me. Officer Claremont was a good friend of mine. <laughs> Ah, you bitch. Perry says that if he wants to solve the murder, all you have to do is confess. Yeah. Oh, my God. Out of nowhere. Jiffy Lube taken completely by surprise. Because you are a dirty cop. You actually were the one being paid off by both Tom Sedgwick and George Fayette. And Claremont got too close to the truth. And so you had him killed and you framed Tom Sedgwick. And now you're framing... Maury and Dixie in order to cover that up. Oh, and by the way, Jiffy Lube, you own the Keymont Hotel. You right. perhaps have bought it with a different name, but I have a handwriting expert who's about to prove that even with a different name, it's the same goddamn handwriting. And Jiffy Lube's like, goddamn, I'm in a corner. What do I do? And it turns out you're the guy who arrested Frank all those years ago and set him up at the hotel. So he's your man. Yeah, well, it's, start, it's time to start blasting. Jeffrey, well, at first he tries to deny things. Perry shows him the deed, like you said. So Jeffrey, very calmly, he's like, okay, well, let me just go and lock the door. And uh, here's my gun. How do you like that? Yeah. He's going to arrest him for bribery. He says that Perry is going to be bribing him. These are all obviously lies with a gun pointed at him. Right. And then you're going to grab for my gun and then I'm going to blast you in the face. Right. What a dick. So Perry, though, stone cold, does not blink, doesn't beg for his life or anything. He's like, you'll never get away with it, Jeffrey. (laughs) You're a fool. (laughs) Perry Mason is one of those guys who, if something exploded... He wouldn't even look at it because he's too cool. Unfortunately for Jeffrey, he, you know, did the Dr. Evil thing of explaining his evil plan out loud at full volume. And Lieutenant Drag, who was just in the other room, heard everything. And then comes through a locked door because old man Cool Hat doesn't give a shit about locks. And then as he comes in, Jaff hears him. Well, 
to be fair, the reason he hears him is because to make sure that Old Man Cool Hat has the law of surprise on his side, he yells at Jeffrey, Jeffrey, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Jeffrey, turn around and take a chance at shooting me. <laughs> so, yeah. But Trag is faster. He's already got his gun out as well. And he pumps Jeffrey in the arm. So Jeffrey shoots up into the roof and misses. Uh, as he falls backwards onto the desk, Perry, you know, puts him in an, an arm lock and grabs the gun. Yeah. It's like a choke hold. He's like, oh, tap out. Tap out, bitch. Jeffrey is totally in a rage. He's like, how could you do this? How how dare you besmirch the sterling record of the LAPD? <laughs> and then old man Cool Hat responds like, you work hard at your job. You take pride in what you're doing. And then a fink comes along and makes a rotten thing out of his right. badge. No one ever thought the LAPD had ever done anything bad until this very moment. One bad apple. Later, at Maury's restaurant, our heroes are relaxing and having some drinks. Perry said that he suspected Jaffrey since the moment he met him. Because in the hotel room, Jaffrey showed almost no interest in the secret message... And he also thought that as a police officer, as a senior detective, Jaffrey would have been very easily able to get Claremont to hand over his gun. Paul says it's a bummer that old man Cool Hat isn't here to share the meal. Perry says he has a job to do. He has to get Sedgwick's statement. And also, you know, I don't like him very much anyway, so I don't want to have dinner with him. (laughs) Right. He has to go through all of Jiffy Lube's rackets. He had quite a few. And by the way, Claremont probably just like gave Jiffy Lube his gun because Jiffy Lube was like, can I see that gun for a second? Thanks. Yeah, I mean, that's stupid, Perry. He could have also just shot him and took the gun after. Right, like he was going to do to you. Maury, uh, now free, comes to take their order. <laughs> and what would you like, Perry? Oh, anything. Anything? Anything but a moth-eaten mink. <laughs> oh, you goddamn minks. So yeah, that's that. those are the three episodes of Perry Mason we watched. Good show. Uh, no dongs. That was a letdown. Really huge letdown. But I will say... Matthew Reese, on his recent interview with Seth Meyers, was asked, do you want your parents watching Perry Mason? And he was like, well, I'm not so sure, because there are a few scenes that get HBO-ified. So, do you see Matthew Reese's dong? Question mark. Matthew Reese is like, I I do want them to watch it. There's about three inches of the show I don't want them to watch. (laughs) Yeah. They (laughs) zoom in on my taint at one point, and I just want them to cover their eyes for that part. If you're hearing this, guys, if anybody made it to the end of this we're taking bets. How many dongs are we going to get in Perry Mason? I'm I'm saying the categories to choose from zero, one, two, three, or more. Personally, I'm going one. I'm going two. I think there wow. are two strong Ooh. dongs. Shooting for the moon. Yeah. Well, I'm just on the side of dongage. I want there. I need this to be real. So please join us next week when we start the HBO limited series perry mason unfortunately they could not get raymond burr back for this version he's been dead for like a hundred (laughs) years exactly a century he's been dead i'm very very excited for sunday night i'm like just excited that i have a tv show to look forward to again oh by the way 
If you would like to get a bunch more bonus content we make, you can just give a dollar a month to patreon.com slash HBO boys, boys of the Z. I fought for that Z. I'm going to say it forever. And also, by the way, we have a bunch of patrons that I'd like to shout out right now. Thank you for giving us a dollar. And that is Atheism is Unstoppable, Bakaman, Brent Ginn, Carol Andreas, Chris Wood, Cliff Wilding, Craig, Day 11 Westworld, Hardboiled Greg, Hello underscore Yo, James Christopher, James Watch My Dong. Yeah, so next week there will actually be two Oh my god, no, I waited for your joke. There are more patrons. How dare you? So sorry. Uh, 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 I'm watching. You're done. I'm not allowing it anymore. (laughs) John Jurors, Lee, Major Woody, and Nicole. Thank you for money. Yeah, and we'll be back next week. As I said, first episode of Perry Mason, and there'll be a bonus episode for our patrons if you want to get in on that. Also, please follow us on Twitter. I'm James Watches Men. He's Westworld Ryan. Nice. And, you know, leave us a review on whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. And really, the best thing you could do, spread the show by word of mouth. That's 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 how we've been getting by. And that's how we'll Christ. continue to get by. Yeah, please tell people. You know what, James? I'm just excited to be watching another TV show with my friend. There we go. With our friends. Nice. With a Z. Fought for that Z. You're going to say it forever. I'm James. I'm Ryan. And this is where the HBO boys podcast. Boys. You didn't fight for the Z. The Z was always part of it conceptually, all right? You're stealing valor. I don't agree. There were so many. I I will bring up the Facebook conversation between you and I where you were like, HBO boys. And I was like, it will have a Z. And then you were like, sure. (laughs) 